today I'd like to welcome to the PodMD studio, Dr. Gokul Tamalarasan. Dr. Tamalarasan is a consultant, gastroenterologist and hepatologist. He trained as a junior medical officer and physician trainee at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital before completing his gastroenterology training at Royal Prince Alfred and Concord Repatriation General Hospital. Gokul also has a keen interest in teaching and currently holds a clinical associate lecturer title with the University of Sydney. Today, we'll be discussing the topic of gourd reflux disease. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast, but please remember that the advice given here is of a general nature and is not intended as specific advice about a given patient. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the doctor, not PodMD. If you do have a patient on whom you require specific advice, then please seek advice from a colleague with appropriate expertise in that area. Gokul, thanks for talking with us on PodMD today. Thanks for having me. The topic of today's discussion is gourd or reflux disease. Can you describe for our listeners what gourd is? Absolutely. So gastroesophageal reflux disease is a very common clinical condition and actually one that's um, very commonly diagnosed and managed by GPs um, across various clinical settings. Um, reflux is actually a physiological process. Um, so the reflux of acidic gastric contents occurs quite commonly after meals um, and at various other times. But it becomes a pathological event uh, or a pathological um, process uh, when the frequency and the severity of the reflux episodes um, causes the patient to be exposed to risks of medical or physical complications such as strictures or cancers or Barrett's esophagus um, or alternatively causes um, a, a symptom burden that impairs the patient's quality of life. Um, and to summarise the main pathological mechanism underpinning reflux disease, essentially it's due to transient relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter, which typically uh, or norm in normal states acts as a physical barrier preventing reflux. So when this uh, mechanism fails, then you get pathological reflux disease. I see. How would a patient with gourd typically present and what are the relevant risk factors? Yeah, sure. Um, so, as I've said, GPs would be fairly um, switched on to this um, presentation, but the typical symptoms are epigastric or retrosternal burning discomfort, usually postprandially and often at night time, uh, but not exclusively. The other symptoms that can occur include indigestion or dyspepsia, um, sour brash or water brash, um, and the slightly less common symptoms but still very relevant are chronic cough, um, particularly in those patients that experience laryngopharyngeal reflux um, uh, or uh, atypical pain like angina-like pain, change in voice quality or dysphonia, uh, and in more severe cases um, you can even get nausea or vomiting um, and patients often describe uh, unwanted or um, uncontrolled belching. Um, in those with more advanced disease, so complications from reflux, um, such as stricturing, you can have patients develop dysphagia or odynophagia if there's quite severe erosive and ulcerating uh, reflux disease. Uh, but these are often very symptom, uh, sorry, very severe, um, severe cases. Um, the relevant risk factors um, for patients would include being overweight, because 
um, being overweight or obese increases the intra-abdominal pressure on the lower esophageal uh, sphincter and uh, is a risk factor. Um, alcohol intake, uh, coffee, chocolate and other dietary triggers can reduce the lower esophageal sphincter tone, um, uh, incre increasing the likelihood of experiencing symptomatic reflux. Um, other um, uh, risk factors would include large meals or late night meals, which can increase gastric distension and gastric acid production right before lying down, which can increase the um, uh, frequency of lower esophageal sphincter relaxation. Um, and the other thing I should mention is that pregnant women often experience reflux due to um, uh, lower esophageal relaxation relating to hormonal changes in pregnancy, as well as the physical stress on the um, uh, sphincter from increased intra-abdominal pressure. Um, and finally, patients who are hospitalized, who are in uh, care facilities, um, who are being nursed supine, have an increased risk of uh, reflux disease simply from their positioning, uh, as well as um, patients with impaired motility, whether that be in the esophagus from conditions like scleroderma or in the um, stomach from conditions like diabetic gastroparesis, uh, all have increased risks of developing reflux disease. Aha. Uh -huh. What are the risks of the condition? The primary risks of the of reflux disease um, are sort of divided into um, a physical um, stricturing phenomenon as well as a cellular um, precancerous lesion known as Barrett's esophagus. So starting with the stricturing um, uh, risk, um, over time uh, repeated episodes of um, acidic exposure to the esophageal mucosa can result in scarring. Uh, and the scarring can eventually, over time and with chronicity, lead to what's called a peptic stricture, usually in the distal esophagus. Um, this can lead to food bolus obstruction, uh, difficulty swallowing, um, and over time can lead to an increased risk for esophageal adenocarcinoma. Um, the other uh, risk factor uh, would be Barrett's esophagus, which is a precancerous lesion um, and is typically identified by the replacement of the normal esophageal mucosa with columnar mucosa um, with um, intestinal metaplasia, which is sort of the, um, the pathognomonic hallmark of uh, Barrett's esophagus. Uh, and this is a precancerous lesion, and all patients who have identified Barrett's esophagus on histology should really be offered an endoscopic and uh, histologic uh, surveillance program to monitor its progress uh, and close surveillance with a, a gastroenterologist. And what are the treatment options? The treatment options, I split them up into three main categories, starting to become four main categories. Um, the more common ones that GPs will be well-versed in are lifestyle measures, uh, medical therapies for which the mainstay is PPI therapy, and then surgical therapy, uh, including the Nissen fund application. The fourth category that's becoming more accessible um, is the less invasive endoscopic therapy, um, and this has particularly been the case over the last 10 years. However, uh, this is still not uh, 
a mainstay, um, and I'll go into that in a little bit more detail. Lifestyle modifications are very simple um, and can improve symptom burden associated with reflux, and this can include any non-pharmacological advice, which would um, uh, mainly include reduction of alcohol intake, uh, dietary modification based on you know foods that trigger the symptoms for the patient, uh, weight loss, uh, raising the head of the bed, and even sleeping in the left lateral position due to the anatomical positioning um, uh, and and um, and positioning of the gastric acid pocket in the left position. Um, but patients that have more severe esophagitis or have um, ulcerative or erosive esophagitis are unlikely to benefit from lifestyle modifications only. They're going to need uh, more significant acid suppression with medical therapy or even surgical therapy if um, failing medical therapy. So the medical therapies um, that the G- that GPs will be uh, quite um, aware of include alginate antacids, so things like uh, Gaviscon or Rennie's um, can help uh, patients who have very mild disease and just need an, uh, a PRN type approach. However, the more common uh, long-term treatments include histamine um, to antag- uh, receptor antagonists such as ranitidine and nizatidine, although ranitidine is now uh, no longer available. Uh, and then, of course, PPIs, which provide much more potent acid suppression, are the more common treatment. Um, typically, patients that present to a GP clinic should really be offered a six to eight week six to eight week therapeutic trial um, of once daily um, PPI therapy. Um, these patients should really be well screened to make sure that they don't have any significant uh, red flags because patients with red flags should really be referred on uh, quite promptly uh, for endoscopic assessment. And we'll talk a little bit more about red flags a bit later on. Um, patients who then have persistent symptoms despite that two-month trial of PPI therapy warrant a referral for endoscopic evaluation. Occasionally, patients will have some improvement on PPI therapy and just need additive therapy, and this could uh, this could mean increasing the dose of PPI or adding in a histamine uh, antagonist. However, in patients that are requiring step-up therapy, I still recommend having endoscopic assessment uh, as well potentially as having a 24-hour pH and impedance measurement um, just to confirm that these patients aren't in fact experiencing functional dyspepsia or or some other pathology that um, will not benefit from further acid suppression. Surgical options um, have not changed dramatically in the last few decades apart from moving from open to laparoscopic and as we discussed the mainstay of that is the Nissen fund application. The laparoscopic approach nowadays is much less invasive than the open uh, Nissen uh, fund application, um, but is still an invasive procedure with its own safety and um, uh, side effect profile. And my main takeaway for for treatments beyond medical therapy, so whether that be endoscopic therapy or surgical therapy, is that patients should definitely have had, apart from an upper endoscopy, they should really have had manometry, as well as a 24-hour pH and impedance test just to confirm that they in fact have pathological reflux disease and they don't have an undiagnosed um, manometric diagnosis such as achalasia uh, or ineffective esophageal dysmotility or various other motility disorders which will 
become worse if they are to have a fund application or, or some form of endoscopic uh, therapy for reflux. Gokul, have there been any developments in treatment in the past few years or are there any in trial or development phase now? Look, to be honest, reflux management hasn't changed a lot. Um, I think the main development has been what we just discussed with regards to endoscopic anti-reflux therapies and that will continue to be the case over the next five to ten years, I would I would assume. Um, one device or procedure that I haven't mentioned is the LINX device, the L-I-N-X device, and that essentially is quite a um, unique device which is a, a ring of um, magnetic beads placed laparoscopically around the outside of the lower esophageal sphincter. And this acts almost like a rubber band around the esophageal sphincter to reinforce it. And um, the difference between this and some of the other surgical uh, mechanisms, such as fund application, is that the the magnetic rings are expandable and do allow um, physiological relaxations of the uh, lower esophageal sphincter, such as for swallowing, burping, and those kind of things. So... There is some good five-year data regarding the durability of Lynx devices, and there is actually um, less um, issue with things like abdominal bloating or, or um, trapped gas-type syndromes with patients um, with the Lynx device. But again, the numbers of patients using this device is fairly low, and it's not that easily accessible. Mm-hmm. What is the likelihood of recurrence of the condition? Um, Look, unfortunately, this is a a fairly chronic condition for the vast majority of patients. Um, Realistically, unless they have a very easily reversible um, risk factor, such as, um, you know, patients that have have been heavily drinking but then are able to cut out their alcohol, they may have a resolution of their reflux disease. But for the vast majority of patients, reflux will be an on and off um, uh, process for most of their life. So that's, that's a real, an issue for patients. So that's why, um, it's really important to have a good relationship for the patient to have a good relationship with their GP and for GPs to understand what the symptom burden is for patients and how they can best address the symptoms. Um, it's really important for the GP to be aware of what is going to make the biggest difference for, difference for that patient. Um, but unfortunately, as I say, it's, it's quite a chronic relapsing condition. Goku, when should a GP refer? So this is where I wanted to talk about red flags. Um, the main reasons for referral to a gastroenterologist, um, for further assessment and probable endoscopic evaluation would include red flag features such as, um, hematemesis or melina, so evidence of upper GI bleeding, um, iron deficiency anemia, um, you'd be surprised by the number of patients that have severe erosive gastroesophageal reflux disease but just haven't experienced major symptoms. Um, and these patients often become quite iron deficient. Um, the other red flag features would include dysphagia or odynophagia, which could represent um, a stricture uh, or it could represent an alternative differential diagnosis um, such as can- um, candidiasis. Um, unexplained weight loss. Um, which unfortunately could, you know, represent uh, more concerning uh, diagnoses such as uh, esophageal or gastric adenocarcinomas. That's a red flag, obviously. And then a family history of upper gastrointestinal cancers, particularly um, 
esophageal or gastric adenocarcinomas would uh, warrant uh, referral. The other reasons that aren't red flags but still would um, uh, warrant referral would include a chronicity of symptoms with minimal improvement. So, for example, if a patient doesn't respond to a therapeutic trial um, or if a patient's been getting crescendo worsening symptoms despite having been on therapy um, for long periods of time or had been previously stable and is now getting breakthrough symptoms, these patients may need reassessment uh, with an endoscopy uh, or uh, with a um, pH study as well. Um, there, uh, the other, the final one that I would would advise GPs to refer for would be even if patients have had um, reflux for a long period of time but are relatively well controlled, they may still need endoscopic assessment for the exclusion of Barrett's esophagus uh, because that is not a symptomatic condition and needs histological assessment to diagnose. I see. What role does the GP play in the treatment of the condition? Well, I think just to summarise what we've just talked about, GPs play a really huge role in reflux. Um, I think they are often the first practitioner that, that sees these patients and must diagnose and monitor the bulk of patients with this condition. Um, it's only the really severely refractory patients or patients with um, Barrett's esophagus that end up regularly seeing a specialist. So I think GPs really need to have a good approach to risk stratify patients and manage them accordingly and work out who needs specialist input and, and work, uh, you know, and, and make those referrals in a timely fashion. But, um, uh, the, the, the other role that, um, falls to GPs is prescribing PPIs. Um, and unfortunately that's been made a little bit more challenging due to changes, um, by the PBS in authority script requirements. But patients that are particularly for higher dose PPIs, but I think the thing to remember is if you're having to increase doses and get into the authority script range of doses, um, maybe these patients really need a reassessment and confirmation of their uh, disease to, to ensure that, that further higher doses are actually warranted and, and necessary for this patient. Gaikul, well, thank you for your time here today in the PodMD studio. To sum up for us, could you please identify the three key take-home messages from today's podcast on Gord? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think the the three main take-home messages that I would have would be um, a therapeutic trial of a PPI is a great diagnostic and therapeutic tool uh, with really good diagnostic sensitivity. Um, GPs should also, the second point would be to always make sure that you've screened for red flags because these patients really shouldn't have um, any time wasted with a therapeutic trial and should be assessed quickly and referred on. And then the third point is that patients should really be on the lowest possible dose of um, PPIs that controls reflux symptoms. And where possible, um, assessment should be made about whether a patient could have a dose reduction or a tapering of PPI dose to try and reduce the number of patients on PPIs that don't have a clear indication. Um, and finally, I know it was three takeaways, but the fourth one is don't forget about Barrett's esophagus and the relevant surveillance that's required. Thanks again for your time, Gokul, and the insights you've provided. Thank you. Great to be here.